Well, as you know, we recently finished um, working our way through the topic of biblical parenting, and so this morning we're going to embark on a new study dealing with the topic of biblical apologetics. So if somebody asked you what the study of apologetics is, what would you say? The biblical apologetics is not teaching us how to apologize biblically, right? And when we sin, <laughs> it's like Tom talked about, it's how to give a biblical defense of the Christian faith. This is a tremendous book. If you're looking to study the issue of biblical apologetics further, it's entitled Biblical Apologetics, Advancing and Defending the Gospel of Christ by Clifford McManus. He's a former student of Dr. Zemeck and probably, you know, took all that Dr. Zemeck taught him in Doc's apologetics class and basically put it in writing form. So it's an excellent book, but he defines apologetics this way. He says, apologetics is the biblical mandate for every Christian to advance and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as they live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit by exposing and subjecting all contrary beliefs to Christ's revelation as found in Scripture. Let me say that again. He says, Apologetics is the biblical mandate for every Christian to advance and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as they live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit by exposing and subjecting all contrary beliefs to Christ's revelation as found in Scripture. And so just think about that definition. He starts by saying it's a mandate. Every one of us then is an apologist, right? We typically think of, well, yeah, you know, apologetics. Well, we leave that for like the James Whites and the guys like that. No, I mean, scripturally speaking, every Christian is an apologist. Every one of us is called to advance the gospel and to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not reserved for these special guys that sit on a platform and debate with other guys. Okay? You have a responsibility, you have an obligation to know God's word, to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to be proactively and intentionally seeking to advance the gospel, and when necessary, to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then notice he says, it's not only the biblical mandate for every Christian to advance and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, as they live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. A very important aspect. You find some young people oftentimes zealous to go out and they learn, um, you know, they come to Christ and they learn about all these apologetical methodologies and they start studying this stuff and then they want to go out and they want to start street evangelizing and they want to start debating, you know, uh, this Jehovah's Witness and this Mormon and doing all this stuff. And yet you look at their life and they're living just like the unconverted world around them. And so what they're saying really rings hollow at the end of the day. They're saying one thing, but they're doing another thing. They're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and its life-transforming power, but they're living an untransformed life. And so who's going to be interested in hearing about a gospel that's powerless to change you? Because you say it has power to do this, but you're still living a life that's characterized by sin and wickedness. So I think that's an important element. Understand 
And sometimes I think we, we try to separate those two. The biblical mandate for every Christian to advance and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ as they live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you truly believe the gospel, if you truly embrace the gospel, the gospel should be changing and transforming your life. And it should come, you know, one of the most potent and powerful things about your advancing and defending the gospel should be the testimony of your own transformed life. There should be no other explanation of your transformed life but the gospel, but the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, by exposing and subjecting all contrary beliefs to Christ's revelation is found in Scripture. That's so important. We're going to get into this stuff later on. But exposing and then subjecting all contrary beliefs to Christ's revelation is found in Scripture. In other words, he's saying that Christ's revelation is found in Scripture is the sole and supreme authority to which we subject all truth claims. And oftentimes you're going to find this in the, in the realm of apologetics is where we try to set the word of God aside And then we try to come up with some other standard of measurement by which we assess truth claims. The only standard of truth, the only source of true authority is the word of God. And so we reason from the scriptures. We don't try to reason independently of the scriptures, trying to find common ground. And we'll get into all that stuff later on. Any other any questions at this point on that definition or just what I've said? No. Okay. Well, we're going to get more into this whole issue of apologetics, but before we do, and before we look at you know some of Clifford McManus's book and just some of this issue of apologetics, I want to first work our way through a book that Dr. George Zemeck wrote called "Doing God's Business God's Way." A Biblical Theology of Ministry. There's a bunch of copies in the back. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand. James will give you a copy of this. I think it's just a very helpful resource in helping us understand uh, just a, a foundation for how we carry out not only biblical apologetics, but just Christian ministry in general. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, and I've said this many, many times before, but your theology ultimately dictates and determines your methodology. In other words, what you believe dictates and determines what you do. And so everything you do in life, you should be able to say, well, here's why I do what I do. And it should be rooted and grounded in principles from the word of God. And yet... You see so many people doing things today in the name of Christ, and there's no biblical explanation for what they're doing or why they're doing it. And so we don't want that to be the case for us. So we want to have a biblical foundation upon which we build our apologetical methodology. And so he he says this in the introduction. He says, the road I'd like to lead us down is both theological and methodological. Although the Bible does not contain a how-to book for carrying on of the Christian ministry, all kinds of methodological implications surface from a biblical, i.e. an exegetical investigation of the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. The Word of God from Genesis to Revelation contains mountain ranges of data on this most vital topic. Therefore, I will endeavor to pick out the most conspicuous peaks in each area for examination. As a point of caution, we must be patient in our methodological quest. The journey will involve several different, though interrelated, expeditions. 
All of these theological expeditions will begin quite generally. However, the methodological significance of each one of them should become progressively clearer as that particular leg of our journey terminates by merging into the next stage of the overall quest. And as these stages reach their ultimate destination, the final one will become transparently methodological. Or to use an architectural image to illustrate how I would like to lead us through the scriptures theologically and methodologically, it may be helpful to envision ourselves as constructing a biblical pyramid. The capstone will be a methodological one. However, it is impossible to suspend it on a skyhook. It must sit firmly on bases built from the ground up. And so he gives that little guide there. Do you see that little pyramid he has? And obviously the foundation is a biblical understanding of sin and man's condition in sin. Next, what flows from that is a biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation and the sufficiency of Scripture to bring about man's salvation. And then in light of those theological understandings of the doctrine of sin and man's sinful condition, his total depravity, his total inability, in light of our understanding of the doctrine of salvation and God's sovereignty in salvation, in light of our understanding of the utter and absolute sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture alone to save someone and to sanctify someone, that leads to our understanding of how we share the gospel and how we serve one another in the Christian church. And sadly, what you see is pretty much the opposite today. You see a whole lot of people, you know, they get saved, they're zealous for Christ, and what do they do? They just run out and they start sharing the gospel with everybody they see. They start serving. They don't understand anything about the doctrine of sin and man's condition. They don't understand anything about the doctrine of salvation and how God brings people to a saving knowledge of Christ. They don't understand anything about the sufficiency of Scripture. And as a result, you see all kinds of pragmatic methodologies of trying to get people to make decisions and trying to get people to do this and to do that. When when you understand their sinful condition, they have no ability to do those particular things. And the one instrument that God uses to bring about those particular things, they've set aside and they've come up with their own human ideas of how to do things. And so this book will be a helpful safeguard for us running out and becoming pragmatic. He says on the next page, now just before we pour the massive biblical footing and foundation in part one, permit me as construction foreman to say a word about who should be helping out on this project. Well, in final analysis, every genuine disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ needs to lend a hand. Although the biblical principles that our project will exhibit, exhibit may be of the greatest benefit to vocational Bible teachers, apologists, pastors, and the like, because they are in quote-unquote full-time ministries, the practicality of these precedents needs to grip every Christian. Whether you are an evangelist or share the good news periodically when opportunities arise, whether you're a biblical counselor or sometimes communicate God's wisdom to needy members of the body, whether you teach in a seminary or at times pass along God's word more informally to people of all ages, the stuff of these scriptural investigations is for all of us. The time is overdue to do God's business his way, and not our way. I think that's so important. He makes two very important points there. One is that ministry is something that all of us are involved in. I think it was John Stott who said, you know, he went to a church in Connecticut one time and he looked at the bulletin and it said, you know, elders or pastors or whatever it was. And then he said, ministers, the entire church. 
And he said, that's exactly right. He says, I don't ever like to be called a minister because what it does is it kind of sets the clergy as the ministers and it kind of has the laity as spectators. And he said, that's not a biblical view. Every one of us is involved in, in, in ministry. We're all ministers. You, you understand that? And that's the whole principle of Ephesians 4, that the pastors and teachers are equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Every one of us is a minister of Jesus Christ. Some of us may do it, you know, in the full-time vocational sense where we get paid for that, and that's what we devote all of our time to, but all of us are full-time ministers. You're ministering at your job, you're ministering with your family, you're ministering with others in the body, you're, you're ministering with your neighbors, your unbelieving family, whatever it is, we should be ministers at all times. And we need to understand that, that that's our role, that's our responsibility, that's our obligation biblically, is that we're ministers of the gospel and ministers of God's word. We're to minister that, obviously, first and foremost, in our homes, if we're married to our wife, to our children. We're to minister to one another in the body, and we're to minister to the lost in our sphere of influence. And so this isn't just for people who are in full-time gospel ministry, pastors. We're all ministers. The second thing he says is that if we're going to do ministry, then we need to do it God's way and not our own way. An important watchword because there's a lot of people doing ministry today, but they're not doing it God's way. They're doing it their own way. They've come up with their own methodology of what they think works. And so I think this book will be a very helpful safeguard to ensure that when we're doing ministry, we're doing it God's way and not our own way. And so he starts with, I think, the necessary foundation is a biblical understanding of sin and a lot of this is going to be review if you've been here for any period of time, but I just don't think you can hear these truths enough. I think every one of us needs to know these passages. We need to have these memorized, and we need to be in a point where we're ready to teach these passages to other people. So when somebody says, well, explain to me why you do what you do, you say, I don't know. I do. Pastor Matt said we should do it that way. No, you can go to the Bible and say, well, let me tell you why I do what I do. Let me tell you that my theology ultimately dictates and determines my methodology. What I believe dictates and determines what I do, and here's what I believe. Let me show you from the scripture what I believe about man's condition, and in light of man's condition, and in light of how God says salvation works, and in light of what God says is the only instrument the Spirit uses to bring about man's salvation, here's why I stick to doing it this way, and here's why I don't do it these particular ways that this church does, and that church does, and that church does. And so let's start with a biblical foundation of the doctrine of sin. He starts off talking about the fact that if a physician just hastily prescribes medicine without a thorough examination of the patient, without a diagnosis based on the facts of his physical condition, he's setting himself up for a malpractice. I mean, can you imagine if you walked into the doctor's office and the doctor said, okay, sit down, we're going to go and start cutting you open. Wait a minute, Doc, I didn't even explain what my symptoms were. You didn't even do any tests or anything. That's okay. I have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Let's cut you open. <laughs> You'd run out of there, and that guy would be setting himself up for a malpractice suit. He hasn't done any sort of thorough investigation to figure out exactly what's wrong with you so that he can rightly address the issue. He says, well, how much more culpable is the Christian medic who does not pay due regard to what the Bible says about man and sin. A superficial diagnosis in this most crucial realm bears eternal, not just temporal and physical consequences. 
For example, unsaved people need a new covenant heart transplant. If any of us should look upon unregenerate people as sick to some degree, but not as being terminally ill, and I would say spiritually dead, and if we should come to them with a box of spiritual band-aids, this accomplishes nothing except possibly to place them at a higher level of accountability in the presence of our holy God. Furthermore, such possibly well-meaning but theologically errant medics will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ guilty of malpractice. I think that's something we need to think about. How many people just run out who are well-intentioned and zeal and start doing things in the name of God but are doing things in a patently unbiblical way? He says, look, one day you're going to stand before God And you're going to give an account as a spiritual medic for spiritual malpractice if you did it that way. Not about you, that sobers me. There brings a measure of sobriety to not just hastily coming up with my own ideas of what I should be doing and how I should be doing it, but rather carefully studying what God says and saying, God, help me understand as your spiritual medic how I need to go about performing spiritual surgery that you've called me to do. And so that should give all of us pause. So he says in this chapter on original sin and total depravity, the ones immediately following it, the scriptures will paint a clear and sobering picture of man's innate sinfulness and his consequent inability to heal himself, to save himself. It will also become obvious that saved people still have a sin hangover that negatively affects some very practical areas of their lives. Therefore, in and of themselves, we are incapable of sanctifying ourselves. Furthermore, although all Christian servants, be they professional or not, are genuinely responsible to minister on all fronts in various ways, we must understand that we are but impotent medics on a great battlefield of spiritual carnage. This important recognition of our own helplessness should drive us to God's efficient provisions. Then and only then will we find ourselves in a humbled position to do God's business God's way. I like what he says there. He says, although all Christian servants, be they professional or not, are genuinely responsible to minister on all fronts in various ways. You understand that? Hopefully this is getting home to you. I think, you know, we live in an evangelical culture where the mindset is, well, the pastor's job is to do the spiritual business. My job is to get a job, is to come listen to sermons, and then to kind of go out and try to live a good moral life in front of people. I mean, I've said this a thousand times, but again, God saved you to be a disciple-making disciple. He didn't save you to be a spectator. He didn't save you so that you could come and just listen to preaching. We're not supposed to be buckets who just come and just keep filling up our buckets of knowledge every Sunday and every Wednesday and every Saturday, and then we walk around with this big bucket. We're supposed to be funnels. We're we're to be taking that and funneling that and fire-hosing that, hopefully, if you will, to everyone around us, spraying everyone around us with the truth. Taking all that we're learning and passing it on to others. We all have a responsibility and obligation to do that. So just ask yourself honestly this morning, am I doing that? Am I being faithful to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I being faithful to be a minister of truth? Am I making it a priority to understand all the truth that I can? And then am I making it a priority to pass on as much truth as I can to those around me? 
Or am I prioritizing other things that have little or no eternal value? And then if I am doing that, do I understand biblically how to do that? Or am I just kind of figuring things out on my own? Or am I just taking my cues from you know, the evangelical culture around me? Well, if this is our responsibility, we need to understand how to carry out God's business in God's way, not our own way. And so the first key thing that to understand then is man's sinful condition. And so he basically runs through, I think very helpfully, four truths about man's sinful condition. He talks about man's polluted roots. So he goes back from the very beginning of how sin entered God's creation and then how it was passed on to every single individual, save Jesus Christ. Then he talks about man's profane reputation as a result of inheriting the, the corruption of Adam. He talks about man's profane reputation of just what he is as a sinner. And then he talks about how man's Reasoning is perverted. So he talks about man's polluted roots, man's profane reputation. Then he moves to man's perverted reasoning, how it's warped. And then he talks about man's perpetual resistance to the truth, to believing it and submitting to it. And I think these are helpful categories that we need to understand about mankind. And again, this may be review, but I think it's just helpful to be reminded of these particular things because it's a building block and everything's going to be building on this foundation, this theological foundation. If you have a wrong theological view, then you're going to have a wrong methodology about how to carry out ministry and gospel work. And so the first thing we need to understand then is man's polluted roots. Man's polluted roots. Where did man's polluted roots start? Genesis? Okay. Yeah, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, basically you have the the account of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created man. And the interesting thing is, you know, the facts of the fall are chronicled for us in the book of Genesis, really in chapters 2 and 3. This is the story, really, of Adam's terrible lapse into sin. And... Dr. Zemek says, you know, I would remind you preliminarily that the Hebrew word for Adam is Adam. The term does not, uh, certainly does refer to Adam, the first historical man, but it also denotes a man or man collectively as mankind. Sometimes in certain contexts, these usages overlap. He says, therefore, this earliest of all references to Adam as the original father of humankind sets up an important relationship between what the Bible goes on to teach about the one, i.e. Adam, and the many, i.e. the human race, traced back to him. By clear implication, Adam was created very good, right? Wasn't that God's pronouncement in Genesis 131? God looked at all that he had made and said that it was very good. And so obviously it would be reasonable then that this divine assessment included an ethical or moral evaluation of the first man and his wife, whose immediate creation is then described in Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Well, systematic theologians often label the first couple's original sin, uh, uh, I'm sorry, original state as untested or unconfirmed creaturely holiness, untested innocence. They weren't confirmed in that state, right? They were born in a state of innocence. 
First part of Ecclesiastes 7.29 memorializes the original condition of Adam and Eve when it says, This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Remember the test? God put man in the garden. Mankind's test was to obey God, and the test case involved only one tree in a very lush and productive garden. God's command was exceedingly clear. Look at Genesis 2.17 so you can see this for a minute. Genesis 2.15, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. So what gracious and abundant provision God had for Adam. Anything he could possibly want, you can eat freely, you can eat as much as you want, you can eat from all the trees that you want, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You will certainly die. And what did Adam do? Yeah, he passively stood by instead of protecting his wife. He watched her eat, and then he ate. And then when he's confronted, he blames his wife. And so it's very clear because of the clarity and specific specificity of God's command. When Adam disobeyed, he not only sinned generally, missing God's moral mark, but he sinned more high-handedly as he specifically transgressed an explicit divine injunction. He stepped over an exceedingly well-marked line that the Lord himself had laid down and drawn. And so at the outset of Genesis 3, Satan's serpent enters the picture. And he first majors on the minors, raising doubts in Eve's mind about the goodness of God. Notice chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Notice he, he changed it around. He distorted the truth. Has God said you shall not eat from any of the trees? God said the exact opposite. He said you can eat of any of the trees. He's trying to put a question mark on the goodness of God. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. She corrects him. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Basically calling God a liar. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so he basically impugns the character of God, the trustworthiness of God. And it was true, their eyes would be opened. However, they would painfully come to know evil by a catastrophic experience. You see, Satan had hidden the infinitely high price tag of such disobedience from her. And obviously his malignant mission was successful, as verse 6 indicates. Notice, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so they fell from that state of untested innocence, from being created in a state that was called very good in Genesis 1.31. And now they fell into a state where they were plagued by guilt. 
right? Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. That state of innocence that they were created in had been tainted. They now felt guilty. They felt exposed. They were no longer comfortable being in a state of nakedness. And they went and tried to cover themselves. And then they went to try to hide themselves, right? Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, what, uh, the command in 2.17 was, In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they die the day they ate of that tree? Uh, they ate of that fruit? Yeah, they died spiritually, didn't they? Yeah, spiritual death set in right away. So a lot of people say, well, you know, they didn't die right away. Well, they did, spiritually speaking. They were separated from God. That's really what spiritual death is. It's a, it's a separation from God. And you can see it. They were immediately and violently separated from the realm of spiritual reality in which they previously moved and had their being. And the signs of spiritual death are immediately apparent. Notice first, Adam begins to think false thoughts about God. He really thinks he can run and hide from God in Genesis 3.8. Prior to his sin, Adam knew that you know, the God who made him and his universe was too vast to ever run and hide from. But the moment he sins, his thinking becomes warped and perverted. And he actually thinks he can run and hide from God's presence. And so his mind is darkened, thinking wrong thoughts about God. Second, we see his affections become perverted. He now has an aversion towards God, and so he runs away from him. And if God hadn't taken the initiative, there never would have been any reconciliation because there's no inclination in his heart now toward God. Instead, there's an aversion away from God. Here's a man who walked with God in the garden, but the moment he sins, he hides himself and wants nothing to do with God. And third, we see that not only his mind and his affections had been radically affected, but now his will is bent towards sin as well. And so not only does he disobey God's clear instruction in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, but when he's confronted about his sin, he's only thinking about himself and how to protect and preserve himself. What does he do? He exposes his wife and blames her for his sin in Genesis 3, 12. So Adam died spiritually with reference to God the moment he ate that fruit. There was severance from God, separation from God. And then eventually he would die physically, right? Isn't that what Genesis 5, 5 tells us? So all the days that Adam lived were 930 and he died. So spiritual death set in immediately. Physical death would follow later. Yeah, the woman you gave me? Yeah. 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 But the problem is that the story of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin is not just bad news for them, it's bad news for all of us as well. Bad news for the whole human race. You see, there's important solidarities bottled up in the last part of the curse pronounced by God upon the satanic serpent in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise 
you on the head and he shall bruise you on the heel. However, by the inexplicable grace of God, there's also hope therein for mankind. No wonder that traditionally Genesis 3.15 has been dubbed what we call the proto-evangelion, the first preaching of the gospel. There's a pronouncement of a curse, but there's hope in that curse, that there's a redeemer who will come. Satan will bruise him on the heel, speaking of the cross, but he's going to crush his head, triumphing over him. But the problem is that Adam's sin didn't just affect Adam, did it? It affected all mankind. Look at, look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, in this passage, verses 12 to 19, the interrelationship of the offense of the one Adam and the sin of the many, the human race, is discussed quite extensively. And you basically see two contrasting realities. Here's Adam, here's Christ. Here's Adam, here's Christ. And the phenomenon that each of these men were corporate representatives and that their respective constituencies, i.e. the people they theologically represent, stand in union or solidarity, both with them and with the consequences of their respective acts. And there's all kinds of evidence for that, but notice verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, who's that? Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, right? Genesis 2. The moment you eat of it, you will surely die. They ate of it. Spiritual death set in. Physical death followed. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so basically, Adam sinned. Adam died spiritually. Adam died physically. And because we're in Adam, we're represented by Adam. He's our federal representative. We inherit Adam's corruption. And we enter this world in a state of spiritual death. And eventually, we manifest sin in our lives. And the result is we die physically because of our sin. And he goes on to talk about that all throughout this passage. There's good news, however, that you know he basically says, if you're in Adam, his transgression affects you and you're going to be condemned one day. But here's the good news. If you're in Christ... His act of righteousness is going to be applied to your account and you'll be justified. You'll be saved. But the point that we're trying to get at here is to understand that through the many analogies and parallelisms here, the respective parties of mankind are reckoned to be in solidarity with the respective principles. All people stand in solidarity or union of fallenness with Adam. However, those out of them who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17, stand in a saved solidarity in Christ. But the point being is that every one of us enters into this world as sinners. You understand that? I know this is basic, but Romans 5.12 and following informs us that Adam became a sinner when he transgressed God's explicit command in Genesis 2.16 and 17. But we're born sinners because of our union with him. We do not become sinners with our first disobedient thought or action. We're born sinners. We're fully responsible for our sins. 
Nevertheless, the inheritance of our culpability traces back to our great-great-granddaddy, Adam. And so mankind is entering into this state. He's not born in a state of untested innocence like Adam was born in. Understand that? Adam was the only one born in that state. Every one of us is born in a sinful state. Gerardo. No, they had salvation provision, and, and this is a complicated passage, and I don't want to get into um, a, a, an extensive exposition of Romans 5, 12 to 19 this morning, but let me just read verses 12 to 14 and then explain briefly. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him to come. There's a lot going on there, but the point being this. He's talking about Adam sinned. How did Adam sin? He violated a clear, explicit command, right? Of every tree you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil you may not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. God, God gave Adam a very clear, very explicit command, and he chose to violate that command. Well, from that time of Adam to the time of Moses, when the law was given, and God explicitly said, you shall have no other gods before me, you know, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, you shall not take my name in vain, you shall not, you know, murder, you shall not lie, you shall not covet, all of these particular things. There was no explicit law given at that particular time. Understand that? Nonetheless, the people did have the law of God written on the conscience of their heart, as Romans 2, 14 and 15 tells us. So everybody was still sinning against God's law. It's just they didn't sin in the likeness of Adam because they didn't have an explicit command to violate. That didn't come until Moses gave the law and they knew the explicit law that they were violating. You understand that? And so during that time, people were still sinning against God. They just weren't necessarily sinning against a clear command of God, but they were sinning against the conscience, uh, the law of God that was written on the conscience of their heart. They were still guilty, and they would still die as a result of their sin, physically speaking. Does that make sense? Just like Gentiles who don't have the law of God, somebody who lives in the jungle is not innocent because they don't have the scriptures to violate. They have the law of God written on the conscience of their heart and they're violating that and so they're guilty. So how, how did they uh, get saved? How would, they, how would any provision for them be saved in that time? Because they, they did fight this. 
you know, my hand, you have my hand, but how do they get saved? Uh, they have the law guide their conscience, but how did that save them? How did God save them? Well, I would say that God saved them the same way that he saved everyone throughout human history. I think in Genesis 3.15, again, you see what theologians call the proto-evangelion, which is basically the first gospel pronouncement, where that's essentially a prophecy about Christ. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head... And you shall bruise him on the heel. So he's talking about Satan, Christ crushing Satan, although, you know, you're going to bruise him on the heel, speaking of his crucifixion. So there's a first gospel announcement right there, immediately following the fall. And then theologians would say there's even a picture of that salvation. If you go down to verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Some would, some would argue that those garments were made from an animal. There was a sacrifice made and then they were clothed in animal skins, which is a foreshadowing of you know the sacrificial system that was to come. And that was kind of a, a covering um, that, that would kind of prefigure the covering that Christ would provide for his people. And then in Genesis chapter 4, you even see... Um, you know, Cain and Abel offering sacrifices, right? So we, we don't know explicitly, but it seems like there was some sort of oral revelation or tradition given to Adam that he passed on to his children about the fact that they need to offer sacrifices to God, this and that. We don't have the explicits. But I would just say in Genesis 3.15, you do have an announcement of grace. I think you have a picture of grace with the covering of the animal skins. I think you have another picture of grace in the fact that God guarded the, the way to the tree and put an, a, a, you know, a flaming cherubim there so that they couldn't get to it. Because if they'd eaten that tree, most would argue they would be, have been confirmed in that state of unholiness. And so God guarded access to that tree, but he would provide access through Christ. Does that make sense or no? I mean, we don't have the, all the explicits, but I would say that some information was given right there in Genesis 3.15. It was pictured in the animal skins. They were protected from going and eating from the tree of life as they were banished from the garden. And no doubt, I think Adam probably orally passed on that information to his descendants. But uh, in Noah, offer sacrifice unto the Lord. Uh-huh. So, must have been by what was handed down to them from their father. Then you see the same thing Job did for all his children. Uh -huh. uh, there was no scripture. Right. God must have revealed it to them. Uh -huh. That this covering would be covering for their sin. He said, perhaps if my children have sinned in their heart. Uh -huh. So there was revelation from God in these men to follow this pattern. Yeah. Even though the scripture was not yet given by Moses. Right. And most would argue that Job was the first, you know, representing the first time period, uh, the earliest time period. So again, prior to the law of Moses, you had these sacrifices being given. You had an awareness of sin and an awareness of this was the way to deal with sin at this point in redemptive history. 
We don't have the explicits in Scripture, but I think it's clear that revelation was given by God, either audibly, perhaps, or through uh, you know, some other form, uh, either Adam and passed on or directly to individuals at that time prior to uh, the law being given. Does that answer your question or no? Yeah, we did not. The only thing to say is that is it. It it takes a teacher like you to be able to explain that because if you, anybody that just becomes a believer, start reading, they will not get that from that. The past would be a little bit bit, uh, uh, difficult to understand and realize there was some means of salvation or grace between the period of of Adam and and Moses. Yeah. you say something? There's still grace. God still saved people by grace, but you know, you see those examples of God and Noah, Lot. Still, it's His grace that He saved people. So, you can still look back and see His grace, or you can see in Adam it says He saved, He was righteous because He believed God and imputed it righteousness to Him. So, there's still those examples of God saving people by grace through faith, and they believe in the Messiah to come. Well, now we have the Messiah, we can look back and say, okay, God fulfilled His promises in Genesis 3 15. We actually have the word of God. You know, we have more responsibility on us, probably. So you still see the model before and after. Right? Yeah. But if you're ignorant, it's hard to see. Just, yeah. If you're ignorant of all this, you know, information of sin and its results, uh, just keep going on real quick. Because in today's evangelicalism or ministry, people jump over this main point. They just want to teach grace and that. Jesus has a plan for your life, and Jesus is good, and he'll use a problem while you're solving. But the real problem is sin, and people don't want to teach sin, and they're guilty for a holy God. Right. They want to jump that part, that's the hard part. It's easy to say, God loves you, Jesus died for you, come accept Jesus, and everything will be better. Everybody wants to accept that great that, that message. But if it doesn't work, I, I try to use it to work. No, no, it's much more than that. You have to preach sin, you have to get people lost, and alarm them to their reality of their condition before God first. They need God for salvation more than anything. And then you can really preach Christ. Until you give people the law, until you give people their guilt before God, grace isn't going to mean anything. So it's just like what in the beginning of the book when he said with the doctor, if a doctor just gives you medication, he goes, oh, hey, this will make you better. What do I need this for? Yeah. Because you have cancer and you're going to die in two weeks. Right. Go, Whoa, give me that medication. So that that's what sin is, and that's what has to be preached first. I think and that's why, you know, in a big church, you know, a lot of people love it because they're not being... Yeah. That obviously has huge implications for sharing the gospel, how you share the gospel. And, and we're going to see later, it, there's a method to the madness that he's building on. You're going to see later how this plays into apologetical methodology and just the fallacies of so many apologetical methodologies today and the only biblical methodology that we're going to see eventually. But to answer your point, yeah, that everybody has been saved the same way throughout all of redemptive history, one way, through repentance and faith in, you know, God's promised provision of salvation, which is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ as we know him today. You know, obviously, revelation is progressive. It builds over time. So what we have today is far more than that what they had but the point is they had to put their faith in the revelation that God had given to them at that particular point in time. And so theirs was probably far more limited. But even in Genesis 3.15, you see 
you know, in seed form, the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the seed of the woman, and he's the one that would crush Satan's head. And then obviously there's more and more revelation being given, but it was always through faith in that promised Messiah to come, and these sacrifices were a prefiguring of his ultimate sacrifice that would take away sin. But like Tom pointed out in you know, Genesis 15:6, you have Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You know, he didn't have all of the details that we have, but he took God at his word. He believed God and his means of becoming right with him. He trusted him and he was declared righteous on the basis of faith. And that's how everybody's gotten right with God throughout all of history, through faith in God's revelation and God's coming Messiah. They looked forward, we look back. Is it true that there's a, like an age of responsibility? Like, when I read the scripture, it seems like, like we hear that um, we're born into sin, or like some we're born in, uh, like, sin did my mother conceive me. Like, we live in a culture where there's a lot of abortion, or maybe it's like there's death that happens before and they make a conscious choice to repent of their sin. Scripture doesn't have a specific age of, of accountability or responsibility. I'll just say that. You can't turn to, hey, this chapter and this verse says, hey, once you turn 12 years old, you know, you're, you're now a- accountable to God. I do think, you know, and again, this is a, a difficult question. And it's typically the question that a pastor gets asked, you know, what happens to infants, what, you know, what that die? My response would be, I think that all infants who die are elect. <laughs> um, and it's a complicated question, and I can send you information on it that you can read. If you've never read John MacArthur's book, Safe in the Arms of God, I think it's a helpful resource dealing with it. It's a complicated issue, but I think the point being is there, there's several different things uh, that would lead me in that direction. You know, one is obviously the example of David. You know, when he's mourning the loss of his child, he's fasting for, um, you know, several days, his child dies, and he says, well, you know, he can't be with me, but I could go be with him. And he seems to derive comfort from that. And he finishes his, you know, fasting and he kind of moves on and his countenance is now joyful. Well, I don't think he's deriving any comfort to, you know, from the fact that, hey, his, his son is in hell and he's going to go to the abode of the dead with his son. I think the statement is he's deriving comfort from the fact that I can't go be with him. You know, he can't come be with me, but I can go be with him where he's viewing his son in the afterlife or his child in the afterlife in that sense where he's deriving a sense of comfort from it. Certainly it's not explicit, but I think there is some implicit things there. Uh, another thing is that all of the judgment passages in scripture, you're judged according to your works, according to your deeds. And so everyone that's sent to hell and condemned was always condemned for their deeds. Okay? 
So I, I think it's interesting that, you know, even in Romans chapter 1, the reason they're without excuse is because they actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So th- there's the assumption in Romans 1 that they knew the truth and that they actively suppress that truth. I don't think an infant knows the truth and is actively suppressing the truth in that particular sense. I don't think that they've necessarily manifested sin at that particular point. So I, I don't think God's condemning a, an infant to hell who doesn't understand why he's being condemned for all eternity. It just seems out of character with the character of the God of the Bible. Certainly there's some people that may not take that view. There's all kinds of views as to what happens with infants. All, all are you know, condemned because all, you know, are born in a sinful state. Some think all are elect. Some think, you know, I would take the view that I think all infants are elect or, you know, all children who who die, you know, without any sort of cognition are elect. Do I have explicit text to point to? No. But I would just say implicitly from what I read of scripture, that that's probably where I would land. And I think if you want more on that, I would recommend John MacArthur's book, Safe in the Arms of God. I think it's a helpful resource. Pastor, on that same issue, there is only what David said there, but there is no other state. But let's say you're a judge, and you're going to punish sin, and everyone is going to judge by the deeds. How will you punish the innocent? I said, well, I'm going to punish you for that sin. Children have to be to the age of accountability to know right and wrong. Until then, they're still innocent. If you're going to punish a child and the child says, you're punishing, what's in? And the child says, I don't know. How are you going to punish? They, they are still innocent. But if they know that they have done wrong, then they have reached to the age of accountability where they learn right from wrong and they will be judged as they did. Until that stage, and if they die, God grace has to make provision because even if God would judge them, how will he judge them? They're innocent. So grace has to be provided. But when the age of accountability, like he said, yes, everyone will be judged by the deeds. So there has to be a line, but yes, there is no clear Yeah, yes, that, that makes sense to me, but like when I read since you're born, you can see. So just sitting there have Well, it's always an act of grace. No, nobody's saying it's, the child's not. The child's not being saved because they're innocent. They're still born in a state of corruption. I would just say that God's being gracious to them and applying the work of Christ to them. I don't think they're being saved apart from God reckoning the work of Christ to them or saving them by grace. It's not like they were born in a state of innocence. That's not what I'm saying. You know, there's even like the statement in Job 3.11. He says, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? You know, it's almost like he sees that as better than his state here of, well, you know, I'm, I'm suffering. I wish I would have died at birth and come forth from the womb and expired. 
why would I want that if I was going to go to hell anyway? You know, so I, I mean, again, it's all implication. It's not explicit, but I just think there's statements throughout the Bible that would lead me in that direction. So I can't point to an explicit text to give you because the scripture doesn't give one. So uh, that's why it's a huge debate among theologians. But <laughs> I guess it gets hard when you're doing like a six, seven or something. Like a baby, it's like you, you yeah. show somebody something. But it's four, seven, that's enough. And, you know, kids kind of know early on when they've done something wrong. They'll run off. When they lie, you can see their face. They know pretty early on, you know, so do they understand? Yeah, and at that point, I would just trust the Lord. You know, the judge of all earth will do right. So, Any other questions or comments? Any of that? Uh-oh, we got a whole can of worms here. <laughs> we haven't gotten very far today. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, I think they fall kind of in that same capacity if they don't have understanding and stuff like that. But that's often my take. I don't. I mean, again, I don't know that I could defend that, you know, with ironclad, you know, dogmatism. But yeah, I think you want to point people to we're not meant to know definitively the outcome of every person's destination. You know, and we don't even know definitively even the men in this room. James, were you going to say something? Or? No idea. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm trying to think where we were now. <laughs> We've gotten off course a little bit. Um, 
Anyway, I, th I think the, the point is we're still looking at man's polluted roots and just kind of looking at the foundation of all this. Obviously, Adam was uh, created in a state of untested holiness, untested innocence. He was given a clear, explicit command from God. He violated the command. He died spiritually. He would eventually die physically. But more than that, he was the representative head of humanity. And so his sinful nature... His moral corruption was passed on to all of us. So unlike Adam, none of us are going to be born in a state of untested innocence and holiness. We're born with a sinful nature that's bent towards sin. We're brought into this world in a state of spiritual death. Um, and there's two passages that he kind of highlights here that talk about the results of the fall for us. So that's what I want to look at in our remaining time. Look at with me at Psalm 51. You're probably all familiar with the passage, but Psalm 51, you know, it's a confession of David after his sin with Bathsheba and then his ordering the murder of Uriah. And basically, it's a model confession. He's crying out for God to be merciful and gracious to him because he doesn't deserve it. He's taking personal ownership of his sin. And notice the statement he makes in verse 5. Well, let me just start reading in verse 2 just because I want you to see the context because some try to distort verse 5 to say something it doesn't say. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless with you judge. And now look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not blaming his mom here, saying, you know what? You know, the reason I'm a sinner is because my mom was in some sort of a moral relationship and, you know, her example has been passed on to me. That's totally foreign to the context and it's foreign to everything that's going on here. David is not blaming his mother for anything. The whole context here is David taking personal ownership for his sin, right? Isn't that what we just read? Five times he says, my, in, in those first couple of verses, my iniquity, verse two, my sin, verse two, my transgressions, you know, my sin. So he, he's, he realized is that it's sin. And he, and he uses all kinds of different words to talk about the whole panorama of sin, the general word sin, missing the mark, you know, iniquity, that moral twistedness and perversion of the soul, and then transgression, intentionally stepping over a clearly defined boundary line by God. So he's calling sin what it is, and he's taking ownership of it. So he's not saying, hey, th this was, you know, I was the product of an immoral relationship. That's not what he means, okay? That, that's a total misinterpretation of the passage, and it's totally foreign into the context. Instead, he's saying, I was brought forth. That the moment I was born, I was born in a state of sin, in a state of corruption, in a state of sinfulness. I had a sinful nature. And then even beyond that, he says, even if you go nine months prior to that, and in sin, my mother conceived me. Even at the point when that sperm united with that egg and I was conceived, I was conceived in a state of sinfulness. And so I wasn't brought forth in a state of moral neutrality like Adam was. No, I w the moment I was conceived and the moment I was brought forth at the point of birth, I was not brought forth in a morally neutral state. I was born in a state of moral corruption inherited right from the outset from my first father, Adam. His corruption, his sin nature has been passed on to me and it's been passed on to all of us. This is what we call original sin. 
And so it's not just that we sin, but that we're sinners at the core of our being. And so when we sin, we're just manifesting who we really are as sinners. Our actual sin is simply the natural overflow of our sinful nature. And so David's confessing his hereditary sin here in verse 5 is the root cause of his actual sin in verse 4. Verse 5 is an expression, again, of David's depravity. It's not a comment on his mother's morality. Again, David's not trying to blame his mother or excuse his skin or minimize his guilt. Rather, he's intensifying his guilt by drawing attention to his inborn corruption. David's saying that from the moment I was born and even further back to the time of my conception, I've been thoroughly polluted by sin. In other words, it's a bad root that produces the bad fruit in my life. It's a polluted fountain that issues forth in the polluted streams of sin. David says in Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. And so this is the condition that we're born in as a result of Adam's fall. That's what all of us inherit, unfortunately. And so notice then not only this particular passage, but Ephesians chapter 2, which is a New Testament passage that kind of speaks to the same issue. Notice Ephesians 2. We'll start in verse 1. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Literally, and you being dead. It's a present participle. (laughs) You existing in this state of spiritual deadness. And we know that that's what he's talking about. He's, not, he's writing to people who are alive, right? So he's not saying you being physically dead. He's talking about dead in your transgressions and sins, in the realm of, the, of your trespasses and sins. So he's talking about spiritual death. And you being dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. So notice that being leads to doing. Because you exist in this state of spiritual deadness, verse 1, it manifests itself in how you live. Your being ultimately dictates and determines your doing. And so in which you formerly walked. Again, walk is a metaphor for your conduct, your behavior. And how did you walk? According to the righteous standards of God? No, according to the course of this world which is in rebellion against God, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and here it is, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. See that? By nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. And so, right there, he's talking about our natural condition. The condition in which we were uh, conceived in. The condition in which we were born. The word nature refers to a condition that's inherent to an individual from the time that they're born in contrast to a condition that's acquired sometime after their birth. In other words, this is not something that you became at some point in your life. This is the way that you were when you were born and came into this world. You were a son of disobedience. You're a child of wrath. These are Jewish idioms, basically saying, you know, when we talk about Barnabas was the son of encouragement, all we mean by that is that he was characterized by the quality of encouragement. 
And it was almost like encouragement was his father and it birthed him. And it's kind of like, like father, like son. And so that's why it was a Jewish idiom. Someone who was characterized by something was called the son of something. That's why, you know, James and John were the sons of thunder. What does that mean? They were characterized by a thunderous personality. Let's, let's have lightning come down and strike this village here, Jesus, you know. That's what he's talking about. By nature, when you came into this world, you were a son of disobedience. You were characterized by disobedience and you were a child of wrath right from, you know, the very get-go. Because you were born in a state of, you know, corruption, a state that's bent away from God, a state that's disobedient towards God, you were a child of wrath. You were deserving of God's wrath right from the very get-go. So you weren't born in a state of moral neutrality. You were born in a state of sinfulness, a state of corruption. And since all people are depraved by nature and all people are spiritually dead, they do not and cannot rescue themselves from eternal disaster. I mean, think about this. If you remember when I preached through Ephesians 2, I talked extensively of what it means to be spiritually dead and how it manifests itself. But uh, let me just read um, one particular definition from Harold Honer that I think is uh, very helpful in regards to uh, just spiritual death and just giving a brief explanation. He says, as those who are physically dead cannot communicate with the living, so also those who are spiritually dead cannot communicate with the eternal living God and thus are separated from God. They are lost and need to be found. They are dead and need to be made alive. Understand that? So when we talk about spiritual death, we're talking about a state where we're completely alienated, completely separated from God in any form of communion with God. Okay? Uh, and I've used this illustration before, but... Basically, there, there's two distinguishing features about them. One, dead people have no ability to communicate, right? There's a complete and total severance of life, leaving absolutely no ability to either to receive or to respond to any sort of physical stimuli. A dead person is completely unresponsive to the physical world in, what, in which they once related and were alive. And two, dead people have no ability to reverse their condition, right, or bring themselves back to life. And so the first distinguishing feature of a dead person is they have no ability to communicate, no ability to respond. Think about it. If you were to go into a morgue, I've used this illustration a hundred times, and you took a pin and you started pricking the, toe, the big toe of the person there, what would happen? Nothing. <laughs> Why? They're dead. They have no capacity to receive or to respond to physical stimuli. Well, that's exactly what's the condition of all man in the spiritual realm. You come into this world spiritually dead, which means you have no ability to receive or to respond in any sort of positive way to spiritual stimuli from communication from God and his word. Doesn't matter how many times you hear the gospel preached in all of its clarity, all of its, um, you know, eloquence, all of its brilliance, all of its comprehensiveness. You will never respond to that positively because you're spiritually dead you need to first be made spiritually alive and you don't have the ability to do that and so you're in a helpless hopeless predicament right and so understanding that is going to be key in our methodology uh, eventually as we get to it 
Because if you think that somebody can just make themselves alive through reasonable or rational arguments, well, then you're going to say, you know what, let's set aside the Bible and let, let's talk about the logic of God. And, well, there must be a creator and this and that. And let's try to reason them into the kingdom. Let's try to reason them into spiritual life. Right? Well, look at this archaeological evidence. I mean, doesn't that make sense to you? Well, what do you think? You're going to reason them into spiritual life when they're spiritually dead? There's only one thing that can impart spiritual life to a spiritually dead sinner. What is it? God's Holy Spirit. And what's the one instrument that God's Holy Spirit uses to impart spiritual life? Yeah, the Word of God, right? The Word of God is living and active. Yeah. It's the Word that imparts spiritual life, right? It, it, uh, well, I'll just give you two passages. Just, just I mean, th- th- this is really, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but just for our, our time this morning, because we're going to develop this further, uh, just man's deadness and depravity and his total inability. But l- look at two passages of Scripture. Look at James 1.18 real quickly. In James 1.18, he says, In the exercise of his will, that's God's will, not the exercise of man's will, the exercise of God's will, he, God, brought us forth. You know what that means? What did David say back in um, Psalm 51? I was brought forth in iniquity. What does brought forth mean there? It's a metaphor for birth, right? I was brought forth mean I was made alive. I was I was born. Well, that's exactly what he's talking about here. But he's not talking about physically, right? What does he say? In the exercise of his will, he, God, brought us forth. He gave us birth, not physical birth, right? But spiritual birth, how? Look at the text. What does what the prepositional phrase say? What, what's the means he used? By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So what's the instrument God used to bring spiritual birth here? The word of truth, the gospel, not clever arguments, not archaeological evidences, not logical syllogisms, the word of truth. Look at first Peter one. Peter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, negatively, not of seed which is perishable, but positively seed which is imperishable. And let me make this clear what I mean. That is through what? The living and enduring word of God. The word of God that actually gives life, spiritual life, and sustain spiritual life. It's an imperishable seed. It, it gives life and it sustains spiritual life forever. You understand that? It's the word that brings spiritual life to spiritually dead people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that's going to be key in our methodology. 
Because if we believe that man's dead, he has no ability to receive or respond to this, and he has no ability to make himself alive, and that the one thing that the Holy Spirit uses to make him alive is the Word of God, then what are we going to do? We're going to stick to the Word, right? And we're going to avoid anything else that would be a waste of time that has no ability to give life or sustain life. And that will expose the folly and futility of so many apologetical methodologies as we move on. Any questions or comments? I know that was kind of quick, but any questions or comments based on what we've seen this morning? Aaron? Yeah. I think it's kind of funny now that I look back, but I figured, of course, in high school, you know, apologetics class, that was teaching you how to defend, or how to defend God, basically. I'd say it's an exercise in futility. I'd say, one, it's nowhere described in Scripture, and it's nowhere prescribed in Scripture. And that's where we get our methodology from. Where do you see any evidence of Paul saying, well, look at the archaeological evidence that we dug up over here in Ephesus, you know. The Scripture assumes the existence of God, and it assumes the veracity and truthfulness of His Word. It doesn't try to prove it, and it doesn't try to defend it. It assumes it, and it works from that starting point. That, that's like me going into a mental institution and trying to be, you know, enter into the world of this mental patient and try to reason and argue from that particular point, leaving the state of reality and going into the state of insanity and trying to argue from that point of trying to reason this guy back to, you know, sanity. It's foolishness. I think, and we're going to get into this later on, but. The, it, it comes with the wrong presupposition. It comes with the idea that man is morally neutral and that what man needs is more information. And so you need to intellectually convince him that God exists and that the Bible is true. Well, the, the, the scripture doesn't say that that's the case. Scripture says man is not morally neutral. Man is a sinner in active rebellion against God. His issue is not an intellectual one. He knows that God exists. You know how he knows that? Because the conscience, the law of God's been written on the conscience of his heart, Romans 2, 14 to 15. And so it either accuses him when he violates it or he excuses it when he acts in accord with it. Not only that, but God has clearly revealed himself through what we call general or natural revelation, right? You, you look up and you see the stars and you see the clouds and you see this grand creation. And Psalm 19 says that, you know, the heavens are broadcasting. They're screaming at you every day that there's a great creator behind this creation and so it says that they all know that God exists already 
And yet they're suppressing the truth about God that he's revealed about himself in their conscience and in creation in unrighteousness, not in ignorance. And so they're not ignorant. It's not, it's not that they don't know that God exists and they need more information and more intellectual arguments. So if you come up with it, if, lay the Bible aside and appeal to their intellect and try to convince them. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says their problem is a moral one, not an intellectual one. They know that God exists. It's just they don't want to acknowledge his existence because it means that they're morally accountable to him and they actually have to submit to him. They can't live any way they want to live anymore. And so that's what the scripture actually teaches, that they know the truth and that they're truth suppressors. And so the issue is a moral one, not an intellectual one. And the only thing that will change them from that state of moral corruption is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And the only instrument the Spirit uses to regenerate a sinner is the Word of God, and in particular, the Gospel. Again, it's your theology is going to dictate and determine your methodology. What I believe determines what I do. And because I believe that that's what the Scripture says, that keeps me focused on task of preaching the word of God from the perspective that God exists and that his word is true. I don't need to defend that. God's not on trial. They're on trial. Okay? I don't need to come and be a defense attorney and try to defend God. God's not on trial. They're on trial. They've violated his law. And his word, like Spurgeon said, is a lion. We just let it out of its cage and it will do its work. If we really believe that it's living and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword? Why do I need to try to convince people uh, of its veracity, of its truthfulness? I just let it out, and it's living. It imparts life. It sustains life. It grows life. That's what the Word does. And if I believe, if I have confidence in the Word, in the sufficiency of the Word, guess what? I'm going to stick to the Word. But when I don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, I don't believe what God said, I'm going to come up with something else. But I would just say that that's neither described nor prescribed anywhere in Scripture. They always started with the starting point that God exists, His Word is true, and we need to focus on preaching the truth of His Word. <clears throat> Any other questions or comments? Yeah, and that's what we're going to look at eventually, and he'll get to that in Psalm 19. You know, And those are key passages, because again, your theology will determine your method. If that's what you believe about the Word, then you'll stick to the Word. I think the fact that I took some classes too, because we're in a postmodern age now, everybody's skeptical of everything, so you got to learn all the science and all this stuff, like reading books, and I'm like, you know what? <laughs> you just give them, preach it a conscience, not their intellect, because it says right there, like, Yeah, and First Corinthians one, um, you know, eighteen to two five will be a very key passage in this whole thing. But let, let me just read First Corinthians two one to five, and we'll close here. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. I wasn't trying to figure out, you know, all of your erudite wisdom and your philosophy and all these things. 
I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's the issue. If I come and I convince you intellectually of you know the the, the veracity and truthfulness and um, you know logic of the Christian faith, and then somebody comes around and they got a better logical argument. Well, your faith was resting on the wisdom of men, and somebody came around with a better argument, and so it shifted to this argument. But if I preach the gospel. And God, the Holy Spirit, takes the gospel and uses it to regenerate you and actually make you spiritually alive. Your faith is now resting on the very power of God and nothing's going to move it from that. And so that, that's my goal is that your faith would rest on the power of God, not the wisdom of some man and his, his syllogisms and his arguments and his ration and his reason and all that stuff. But with that, it just goes around and around because... Their heart is hard and they have biases. They don't want to believe. So there's always wrestling devices. You get, oh, and then they just pull things out of the cloud. It's just, it's That's a never-ending cycle. It's a smoke screen. Well, if I can find one question that you can't answer, then I can salve my conscience that I'm not guilty because I've disproved your religion. You didn't disprove anything, you know? You're just coming up with all of these obscure questions that are, are just exposing your suppression of the truth. You're, you're just trying to deny what you already know to be true. And, and some people get caught up in it and they try to run over in this rabbit trail and this rabbit trail and try to answer every question. Well, that's great. If you answer every question at the end of the day, you still haven't given them the one thing that the Spirit uses to save them, the gospel, the word of God. It says in Romans 2 that there's no answer back for the law of God and shut people's mouth. So they can reject it, but they got no answer back for it. It's like you just give them the law, you give them what God says, it's not you trying to be intellectual. It's what God says, and they got, they got nothing, they got nothing to answer back for, other than emotional, passionate responses that don't do yeah. On the last day, they're going to be, all mouths will be shut. And he says in Romans, you know, we'll get into this, Romans 1.20, that, you know, God's clearly made himself known. They're without excuse. They're, they're without, literally in the Greek text, it's the Greek word apologetic with the alpha privative prefix to it, negating it. It's, they're left, they have a non-apologetic. They have no defense before God. They're left defenseless. They have no argument. God made himself clearly known. They knew it. They suppressed it. And when God, and they stand before God, they're going to have a non-apologetic. They're going to have no defense for themselves. They're going to be exposed. There's no excuse. So I, I always tell people, anytime I'm evangelizing and they do that, I just say, look, at the end of the day, you know and I know that you know God exists. Your conscience bears witness to that reality all the time. And you may try to, you know, you know, suppress that truth. You may try to fill your life with drugs or alcohol or busyness or work or whatever it is. But when you get quiet all at night, you know your conscience condemns you. You know you're guilty before your creator. And I said, your only hope is to repent and believe. You could try to suppress that knowledge all you want, but you know God exists and you're suppressing that truth and your unrighteousness. And I just try to keep them on point and keep preaching the gospel so that the spirit can save them. Harold. And, uh, sometimes you have their attention for a couple of minutes. And then, 
Yeah, obviously every situation is going to be different. You know, when you have long-standing relationships with family members and you have time with them and it's extended time or, you know, hey, I'll see them this weekend or I'll see them again, you know, you can slowly build on certain things. When you only have a short window of time, you know, it was Dr. Zemek who um, wrote this book and has an excellent class in seminary on apologetical methodology. He used to kind of call it an accordion, you know, and you stretch the accordion and the gospel is very thorough. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago and we did a session on that, on biblical parenting, on sharing the gospel, we went through the whole book of Romans and shared the gospel in a comprehensive sense. But you want to have the ability to also pull the accordion in and say, hey, here's my two-minute gospel presentation. So I think it's just the, the, the more familiarity you have with the gospel, the more you, you share it with other people and share it and crystallize it in your own mind, the more you're going to grow in your ability to clearly and succinctly uh, share it. But I think, you know, Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel?, is a helpful resource, I think, to synthesize it in those four points, you know, God, the creator, the lawgiver, the judge who's holy and righteous and demands that you be holy and righteous, you know, man who willfully and consciously rebelled against God and his law, he's unholy, he's condemned by God, he can't save himself, and then Christ, you know, what he did in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection as the only, you know, provision for man's salvation, and then the necessary response of repentance and faith. So I think just briefly explaining those things, you know, and trusting the Lord. You know, missionary John Glass always talks about, you know, his conversion when he was kind of a prodigal just roaming around. I think he was in India just kind of roaming around and somebody shared John 3.16 with him. And that's what God used. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, you know, those who believe would not perish but have eternal life. He realized he was a sinner. He realized that God gave his son for his sins. He realized that if he believed in Christ, he would have eternal life. And at that point, he repented and believed. So you never know what God's going to use. You just want to stick to the Bible, stick to the truth, because that's what God uses to save people. Well, we're out of time, so let me go ahead and uh, close us in prayer. Father, again, we're thankful for just this time this morning. We're thankful for the truth of your word, how it not only informs our minds, but transforms our lives and then stabilizes us and helps us to stand fast on the truth, to have deep, immovable convictions that ultimately govern and guide what we do and how we do it and why we do it. And I pray that we would always have methodology that would be rooted in biblical theology and that we would always stick to the authority and sufficiency of your word and to do all we do based on what you've clearly described and prescribed in your word. Help us in this area of apologetics to not waver from that, to not be influenced by other theories or ideas, but that your word would inform our practice in this area as in every other area, and that you would help us to understand the utter and total depravity and inability, the total depravity and inability of man and his utter inability to uh, repent and believe apart from the regenerating work of your spirit and realizing that the spirit only uses the word of God, in particular the gospel, to regenerate and so that we would stick to your word, trusting in its power, its sufficiency. Help us in these things. Give us great opportunity for gospel ministry, not just uh, here in the church, but even as we leave the four walls of the church and those in our sphere of influence. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.